I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. We've all been told that the key to weight loss is to just eat less and exercise more. Why is that advice unhelpful? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Two-thirds of American adults are overweight. Our guest today says that shaming and blaming does not work. The food industry has made processed snacks positively addictive. Dr. Robert Lustig explains why a little fat in your liver is more worrisome than a lot of fat on your butt. A couple of new weight loss drugs, especially Wigovi, have captured public attention. Will they fix the obesity epidemic? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, what everyone gets wrong about weight loss. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, COVID-19 is still with us. Earlier in the pandemic, some experts suggested that it might be no more dangerous than the flu. Now, scientists in Switzerland have published a careful study comparing in-hospital mortality of patients with COVID and those with influenza. The study took place in the first three months of 2022 and included more than 5,000 patients. At that time, Omicron was the dominant form of COVID-19 in Switzerland, and 59% of the patients in the study had COVID. 41% had influenza A or B. Although people with any of these infections were equally likely to need ICU care, those with COVID were more likely to die while hospitalized. The death rate was 7% for COVID-19 and 4% for the flu. Vaccination did make a difference. Unvaccinated patients with COVID-19 were twice as likely to die as patients with influenza. Ivermectin is a wonder drug. It saved the eyesight of millions of people in Africa and Latin America. Early research suggested it might be beneficial against COVID-19. A new study in JAMA has produced disappointing results, however. Subjects were recruited from 93 sites between June 2021 and July 2022. Participants were outpatients with mild to moderate symptoms of test-verified COVID-19. 1,206 participants were randomized to receive high-dose ivermectin or placebo. The median time to a sustained recovery was 11 days in the ivermectin group and 11 days in the placebo group. There was no difference between the two treatments. There was also no statistical difference in complications, hospitalizations, or death. The authors conclude that, quote, these findings do not support the use of ivermectin in patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. An editor's note points out that a meta-analysis of 11 clinical trials found no benefit of ivermectin for COVID-19. This is the fourth large clinical trial since that publication to reach a similar conclusion. Fever is the body's response to infection. It can help keep pathogens from replicating and alert the immune system to produce more antibodies. But even though low-grade fevers are more a sign of a problem than a problem in themselves, a poll from the University of Michigan has found that more than one-third of parents give their children fever-reducing drugs. 
even when the temperature is under 100.4. Pediatricians usually advise against treating such a low fever unless the child is acting ill. The poll did show that 65% of the 1,300 parents polled record the time of administration of drugs like acetaminophen or ibuprofen. About 84% generally take the child's temperature again before giving a second dose. However, a fourth of the parents give another dose even if the child's temperature has become normal to keep the fever from returning. While infants less than three months old should be seen by a health professional if they develop a fever, treating a low-grade fever in older children may be counterproductive. Americans love laxatives, but a new study suggests a link between regular laxative use and dementia. Investigators analyzed data from more than half a million people in the UK Biobank database. People who used osmotic laxatives on a regular basis were at greater risk. The increased risk for those taking one laxative was 28% higher. Those who regularly took two different laxatives had a 90% increase in risk. The absolute risk over a decade was 0.4% for people who did not use laxatives and 1.3% for those who did. According to a national poll on healthy aging conducted by the University of Michigan, 13% of people over 50 can't stop eating highly processed foods. The poll included about 2,000 people between 50 and 80 years old and was nationally representative. Although one out of eight confessed two or more symptoms of food addiction, the problem's actually much bigger. 44% of the respondents had at least one symptom, such as intense cravings, or an inability to cut back on salty snacks, sugary drinks, or fatty foods. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. According to the CDC, three-fourths of American adults are overweight. That's a big change from our grandparents' day. What went wrong? Our guest today is Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology, with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including his most recent, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Robert Lustig. Thanks so much for having me, Terry. My pleasure. Dr. Lustig, you know, we've seen a lot of programs lately, a lot of articles about obesity as a disease. And that's something that you've been dealing with for decades. So perhaps you can tell us, what are some of the consequences of significant overweight? So... I need to roll that back for you, Don. Number one, obesity is not a disease. Obesity is multiple diseases. It is not obesity. It is obesities with an S. There are a lot of different pathophysiologic mechanisms. There are a lot of different things that can go wrong in different people. 
And what we've learned is that you can't fix the problem until you know what the problem is. Now, there are three reasons why people gain weight. Hunger, reward, stress. Until you actually determine which is the problem in which patient, you're not going to have much of an effect. Having said that, there's also not just obesity in the sense of increased weight gain. There are three separate fat depots and different pathologies cause different increases in those fat depots and those fat depots have different implications for metabolic disease and uh, mortality, morbidity and mortality. So let's go through them real quick. The big one, the one that everyone sees, the one that everybody thinks is the most important in obesity, we call subcutaneous or big butt fat, as in, does this bathing suit make me look fat? And by the way, never answer that question. <laughs> now, that, that fat, that subcutaneous fat, turns out to be protective against metabolic disease. The more of it you have, the less metabolic disease you will have, the less diabetes, the less heart disease, the less fatty liver disease, the less cancer, the less dementia. Okay, It's actually protective. Now, you can get to a certain point where you stretch those fat cells the fat vacuoles in those fat cells so severely because you've put so much fat into them that they can then actually break down and trigger all of the metabolic problems that we associate with chronic metabolic disease. So that um, subcutaneous fat has a limit, but for the most part, you can gain a fair amount of subcutaneous fat before you show any signs of metabolic breakdown on the order of about 22 to 25 pounds. Now, the second fat depot, the visceral fat, the big belly fat, that turns out to have nothing to do with hunger or reward. What that depot has to do with is stress. And the reason we know this is because you can take people who have endogenous clinical depression who are not eating okay, who, you know, are suicidal because and they have to be put into the hospital to save them from themselves. And they're losing weight. They're losing that subcutaneous fat. But you stick them in a scanner and they've actually gained visceral fat because their cortisol, their sympathetic nervous system is, you know, ramped up to the max. And that's actually generating this visceral fat. And that visceral fat is much more dangerous, maybe only four pounds will end up causing all of those cardiovascular diseases. And then finally, the third fat depot, which is the liver fat. And that's ground zero for where the problems are. Basically, this is a liver-mediated disease. And the thing that makes that liver fat, sugar and alcohol. Sugar and alcohol are the primary drivers of that liver fat. And how many pounds of fat does your liver have to accumulate before you end up with problems? Half a pound. So 25 pounds of subcutaneous fat or four pounds of belly or visceral fat or half a pound of liver fat. Now, can you measure half a pound of liver fat on the scale? I wouldn't think so. That's why 
uh, 60% of the normal weight population have the exact same diseases as do the obese. They have liver fat and they don't know it because it doesn't register on the scale. They're just as sick as everybody else and they don't understand what the problem is. So the fact that you know we have these various reasons for obesity, they have to be dealt with differently. We have these various fat depots that confer metabolic harm and they have to be dealt with differently. That's what makes this so complicated. And of course, everyone is a dietitian and everyone is their own N of one. And so they figure if it worked for me, it would work for everybody. Well, we have learned that that is just absolutely not true. And everybody has an opinion. <laughs> About this, everyone has an opinion. So, Dr. Lustig, it sounds as though obesity is a lot more complicated than most of us realized. Oh, absolutely. Everyone has been told by, you know, the TV, by the food industry through commercials that obesity is just you eat too much, you exercise too little. They basically say it's about calories in, calories out. It's about energy balance. And Dr. Lustig, there's one other thing. Yeah. It's the shame and blame game. It's absolutely. like if you're overweight, it's your fault. You didn't exercise enough and you ate too many calories. And again, exactly. much more complicated. It is way more complicated. I will state categorically for the record, there is no patient on the planet who chooses to be obese. Okay. Especially children, especially babies, especially newborns. Well, we have an epidemic of newborn obesity. Do we have any idea why? How, how does that work, that we have babies who have just been born, they haven't had a chance to develop much fat in their lives, and yet there they are? Well, they've had nine months to grow that fat, and that's exactly what's happening. So we now know that there are all sorts of transcription factors and hormones that are at work to differentiate various tissues into fat that occur even before the baby is born. And I could give you the list of all the different transcription factors and hormones that are involved. Wrote a paper about it last year in biochemical pharmacology. Bottom line, it's what the mother ate that leads to this. And, you know, the baby didn't have any choice in that. So, in fact, what the mother ate has everything to do with what happens to babies going forward in their lives. So another thing to blame on your mother. But if you take a look around the world, different studies in the US, South Africa, Israel, Russia, babies today weigh 200 grams more. That's half a pound more than they did 25 years ago. And when you stick them in a scanner, turns out that 200 grams is all fat. So we have obese newborns. Did they ask for that? <clears throat> did they, <clears throat> excuse me, did they um, diet and exercise their way into obesity coming out of the womb? You know, there is so much more to this story than what the public has been fed by the food industry. It's not even funny. 
And just to summarize, because I know a lot of our listeners have some doubts about the consequences of being overweight, we are talking about diabetes, the number one metabolic condition that worries us, but also hypertension and heart disease. And you've mentioned fatty liver. We have one minute before the break. Why is fatty liver a problem? Well, it turns out that the fat in your liver is what causes this phenomenon, which people now have heard of because it's on TV, on commercials, called insulin resistance. So insulin resistance, remember, insulin is your energy storage hormone. Now, people know insulin is the diabetes hormone. Yes, diabetics have to take shots of insulin to keep their blood glucose down. Well, when you take a shot of insulin, where does the blood glucose go? It went to your fat. Insulin is the energy storage hormone. Insulin shunts energy to fat. Insulin makes fat. More insulin, more fat. Well, when your liver has fat in it, it can't see the insulin signal. Your pancreas ends up making more. That causes this phenomenon called hyperinsulinemia. That is way high insulin levels in the blood. And that then drives everything that's in your blood into fat. And that's the reason for the weight gain. So that fat in the liver is the driver of our current obesity pandemic. You are listening to Dr. Robert Lustig. He's Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig is the author of Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. After the break, we'll learn more about why the advice to eat less and exercise more doesn't work as well as we'd like. What are mitochondria? We'll find out what these subcellular powerhouses have to do with obesity. There are some new drugs getting attention for their ability to help people lose weight. What's the story on Wegovy and Ozempic? Find out about the side effects as well as the effectiveness. These pills are pricey. Not everyone can afford them. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, 
plants, and planet to create healing. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. How often have you heard that we're overweight because we eat too much and move too little? That's the conventional understanding of obesity. Why isn't this idea more helpful? We are talking with Dr. Robert Lustig. He is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at UCSF. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including his most recent, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Dr. Lustig, we've talked about the fact that uh, the usual perception of if you have too much fat, it's because you didn't exercise enough, you didn't diet enough, you ate too much, and yet we've just agreed that that doesn't work very well. Please remind us why not. (laughs) Well, so there's no question that diet and exercise don't work. Now, the question is, why don't they work? They ought to work. It sounds like they ought to work. If it were about calories, they would work. But they don't work because it's not about calories. The food industry wants you to think it's about calories because that's their way of assuaging their culpability. Because after all, everything has calories. Why pick on our calories? Go pick on somebody else's calories. Everyone gets discretionary calories. You know, you can spend them on sugar as an example, you know, Coca-Cola. Well, the fact of the matter is you can't. And the reason is because sugar is direct mitochondrial toxin. Sugar prevents you from burning. Now, the food industry will tell you, well, sugar has got four calories per gram. It's ready energy. Well, that's if you burn those four calories per gram in a bomb calorimeter. But we're not bomb calorimeters. We have these things in our cells called mitochondria, and they are not bomb calorimeters. They have doors on them that allow certain energy substrates to go in, and sometimes those doors close and don't let them in. Now, Dr. Lustig, what are mitochondria? We've often described them as the energy factories of the cell, but I bet you can do much better than that. No, that's a great definition for them. They used to be bacteria. They have basically made a the devil's bargain with us. We house them and they produce energy for our cells. That's basically what mitochondria are. Refurbished bacteria, repurposed bacteria. They have their own DNA, in fact. And what they do is they turn chemical energy into Um, one kind of chemical energy that is called food into another kind of chemical energy, which we call ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And the phosphate bonds in ATP are where the energy is located. And those then power all the functions of the cell, all the different things that the cell needs energy for, like, for instance, division, like, for instance, neurotransmission, like, for instance, uh, hormone secretion. All of those things cost energy. And the way that cell does it is it reaches into those ATPs and breaks a phosphate bond, and that liberates the energy 
So turning the food into ATP is the mitochondria's job. Now, the question is, what can go wrong with the mitochondria? Well, several things. Turns out mitochondria are relatively fragile. Mitochondria go bad. They go rancid really fast. And so you have to constantly replenish them. And there's a signal in the cell to replenish them. If that signal is awry, you're going to end up with old, decrepit mitochondria that are not going to work very well. And so they're not going to burn energy very well. And so what will happen is because they're not burning energy very well, that energy that should have gotten burned will end up being turned into fat. In addition, there is an enzyme in your cell called AMP kinase, which is the fuel gauge on the liver cell. Turns out the fructose molecule, the sweet molecule in sugar, directly antagonizes that AMP kinase and causes it to become inactive. Well, that's basically telling your liver cell you don't have any energy and that it needs to turn all of that into fat instead. So bottom line, there are a lot of things that can happen, and it turns out sugar is a primary driver of turning those mitochondria off. But that's only one problem. There's a second problem, and it's called inflammation. Chronic inflammation causes mitochondria to not work well. Chronic inflammation causes insulin to not work well. Everyone today is chronically inflamed. And the reason we know that is because we can draw their blood to find out. Everyone has a high sensitivity C-reactive protein that's higher than it should be. So the question is, where's that inflammation coming from? And it's coming from your gut. It's coming from your intestine. Your intestine is supposed to protect you from the stuff inside your intestine. You know, you've got bacteria and viruses and fungi and all sorts of, you know, bad actors floating around inside your intestine. And if you don't believe me, just, you know, go to the bathroom and take a whiff. All right. All that stuff has to stay inside your intestinal lumen. You don't want that seeping into your bloodstream. Well, your intestine has three separate mechanisms for keeping the bad stuff out of your bloodstream and letting only the good stuff in the food make it into your bloodstream. It's got a physical barrier called the mucin layer. It's got a a chemical barrier called tight junctions, and it's got an immunological barrier called TH17 cells. Now, in order for those three barriers to work right, you have to feed those cells and you have to feed those bacteria so that they will not be, shall we say, primary offenders, that they basically get what they need so that they don't then turn on you. Well, the thing that they eat, the thing that they need is fiber. The lack of fiber in ultra-processed food, the lack of fiber in the American diet has caused chronic inflammation to such an extent that It's causing this insulin resistance as a matter of course, you know, as basically as baseline. And as long as you have that insulin resistance, there's no diet or exercise that's going to make a difference. So 
You have a metabolic problem, the mitochondria. You have an inflammation problem, the gut and the lack of fiber. Well, Dr. Lustig, the pharmaceutical industry says it has come up with the answer. And all you have to do is go on social media, perhaps read Elon Musk saying that Wegovy <laughs> helped him lose quite a lot of weight, or you can just you know, watch almost any news program or any headline today, and they are singing the praises of semaglutide, or there's another way to pronounce it, Terry. Semaglutide. <laughs> semaglutide. No, that's the way to pronounce it. Semaglutide, and the brand name is Ozempic and Wagovi. Yes, right. and Ozempic was originally developed for diabetes, type 2 yep. diabetes, and it yep. works pretty well to control blood glucose, blood sugar. Yep. And then along came ribelsis, which is also semaglutide or semaglutide, and that's an oral version. But the yep. one that's really driving the buzz is, of course, Wegovy. That's the one that Elon Musk said he was taking. Right. But there are other, we call them GLP-1 agonists. Right. Munjaro is um, a diabetes drug, but it will come for weight loss. And yep. there are several others in the pipeline. And there are people who are saying, wow, Dr. Lustig, I lost 30 pounds. I lost 50 pounds and mm -hmm. it's changed my life. Mm -hmm. How do you respond? Very simple. It is true that these medicines do cause weight loss. No argument. One of the reasons they cause weight loss is because they go to the brain and tell the brain that you've eaten. They activate the satiety signal. It's one of the reasons why one of the side effects of all of these medicines is nausea and vomiting. Just like when you've overeaten at the buffet and you feel kind of nauseated. Okay? That's kind of the signal that Ozempic and Wagovi are giving your brain. And that's a pretty reasonable signal to give. And I'm not saying it's not. And so it is causing reductions in food intake, and that's good. And so it is causing weight loss, although I'm told that the weight loss tends to come from inside your face. And so you, you, there's now this thing called Wagovi face. So I'm not sure how many people want that. Nonetheless, they do cause weight loss. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The studies on drugs and surgery demonstrate a reduction of 16% in body weight. Now, that sounds pretty good. But the problem is that if you actually fixed the diet, you would have reductions of between 29% and 74%, not of body weight, but of diabetes, of heart disease, of cancer, of fatty liver disease, and of dementia. And Wagovi and Ozempic are not doing that. And the reason they're not doing that is because they're not designed to. They're not fixing the problem. They're not fixing the mitochondria. They're not fixing the inflammation. The only thing they're fixing is the fact that they, you know, that you, you think you've eaten. Now, I'm not saying that's bad, but it is bypassing the problem. It is not dealing 
with the problem. I wonder, Dr. Lustig, if you could review for us some of the most common side effects, because every medication that has an impact on us, even an impact that we're happy about, is going to have also some impacts that we might not be happy about. We've heard from some people who describe the side effects of Wigovi as intestinal apocalypse. <laughs> is that hyperbole? It sounds like it. That's that's it. I hadn't heard them that referred to that, but okay, I'll I'll take it. Uh, so I remember when I went to medical school. This is 1977 now, second year of medical school, and the first day of pharmacology, and the chairman of the department came and gave the first lecture, and he defined pharmacology, and it was selective toxicity. The goal is to poison one thing and not poison another. That's the goal of pharmacology. Well, it turns out that's hard to do. There are very few drugs that poison one thing and not anything else. So it turns out there are a lot of drugs that have a lot of side effects, have a lot of adverse events, have a lot of problems. Well, guess what? These drugs have two. So the nausea and the vomiting, they may actually not even be an adverse event. They actually may be part of what causes the weight loss. Because like I said, it's like your brain telling you you've eaten too much. So that may actually be a positive. You know, that may not be a bug. That may be a, a feature. On the other hand, you can get intestinal uh, uh, diarrhea, uh, bloating, et cetera. You, you know, it does weird things to your intestine. And it also causes pancreatitis. And pancreatitis can be deadly. And it also has the, the earlier versions. We don't know this yet about Wagovi, but the earlier versions of GLP-1 analogs, such as, for instance, uh, exenatide like Bieta, they cause pancreatic cancer also. And pancreatic cancer is not one you can survive. That, that's pretty much a 100% death knell. Speaking of cancer, what about the thyroid? Uh, yes, it can also cause uh, thyroid dysfunction as well. And I believe it is associated with uh, uh, cases of thyroid cancer in certain patients who have a genetic predisposition. Let's talk about one other side effect, if I may. Mm -hmm. Cost. Oh, <laughs> so there was a paper that came out just yesterday that said if everybody in America who qualified for Ozempic went on Ozempic, it would cost the U.S. Um, healthcare system $2.1 trillion a year. $2.1 trillion a year. Now, the U.S. healthcare system currently costs $3.8 trillion a year. So this would be more than 50% of all healthcare costs in the United States if all the people who qualified actually went on it. It costs about $1,300 a month right now. Now, are insurance companies paying for that? Well, they're starting to think, you know, it's kind of a trade, you know, because all these people are going to get diabetes and that's going to cost money and all these people are going to get, you know, uh, fatty liver disease and dementia and everything else. Well, the fact of the matter is they're still going to get it. Just because they lost the weight doesn't mean they're not going to get it because they bypassed the problem. They didn't deal with the problem. And the drug industry is going to have to wake up to that. So 2.1 trillion down the tubes. If we changed our food, 
If we got the sugar down and got the fiber up, if we basically got rid of food subsidies, in which case then the food industry wouldn't have the impetus to offer us high sugar, low fiber foods, ultra processed foods, because they wouldn't be getting a price break from the government. We could, instead of spending 2.1 trillion, we could save 3.9 trillion and get the same effect. So there's a $6 trillion difference between those. All you had to do was get rid of the food subsidies. Fix the food, fix the problem, fix the problem where the problem is, fix your mitochondria, fix your inflammation, fix everything instead of bypassing the problem and risking all of these uh, adverse events and morbidities and mortalities. That's what I say. You're listening to Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology, with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system. His research has focused on the causes of childhood obesity. Dr. Lustig is the author of Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. After the break, we'll discuss what happens when you stop taking a weight loss drug like semaglutide, that's Wegovy or the diabetes drug, Osempic. There must be other ways to address the obesity epidemic. What does Dr. Lustig recommend? It's a good idea to shop the edges of the supermarket instead of the middle. How can we get the food industry to do the right thing? A lot of kids get fast food in their school cafeterias, but it is possible for schools to serve real food instead. What should people be doing to help themselves lose weight? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at coco, 
VIACocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, our topic is what everyone gets wrong about weight loss. Prescription drugs like Wegovi and Ozempic are so popular that they're in short supply, even though they are extremely expensive. What happens when you stop using them? Our guest is Dr. Robert Lustig. He's Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including his most recent, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Dr. Lustig, you have just described some of the problems associated with the what we refer to as the GLP-1 agonists, the, the drugs that have a, an impact on our metabolism, on our blood sugar levels. There's one other potential problem that we've heard about with drugs like Wegovi, and that is that when you stop taking them, when you stop the oral version, ribelsis, uh, and it's not yet been approved for weight loss, or when you stop the once-a-week injections for like a drug such as Wegovi, the weight comes back. Indeed. As you've pointed out, these are expensive drugs, over $1,000 a month, and insurance is a little ambivalent about covering them for weight loss. So it could mean that people would have to take these drugs not for months, not for years, but for decades if they wanted to maintain the weight loss. That's right. And you've also pointed out that uh, it's not solving the problem. So number one, can you tell us about the rebound problem? And then number two, can you tell us how you would solve the problem besides taking away the food subsidies? (laughs) So does it surprise anyone that a medicine that's not fixing the problem, but instead band-aiding the problem would not work as soon as you stopped it. That's true for anything. You know, there are very few medicines that are true cures for a disease. Um, Antibiotics are true cures for specific diseases, for specific infections. So, We do have acute medicines that do work, and, you know, I'm all for them. But, you know, chronic disease is a different ballgame. In fact, we don't really have any treatments for chronic disease that actually deal with the disease itself. What we have are treatments that deal with the symptoms of disease. Example, statins. So statins do lower LDL. The problem is LDL is not the problem. LDL is a manifestation of the problem. LDL is a marker for the problem, but it's not the problem in and of itself. And we know that because now there have been 60 separate meta-analyses demonstrating that the mean increase in lifespan from primary prevention with statins is a total of four days. And the reason is because LDL wasn't the problem. Another example, blood glucose. 
we have a whole bunch of medicines that lower blood glucose. We have insulin, we have uh, 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 tolbutamide and, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, sulfonylureas. So, and uh, we have the glitinides. Okay, we have, uh, we have a whole host of different glucose-lowering medicines. And if you look at the data, they help reduce retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy. And that's true because those are glucose-mediated. But the patient dies just the same at the same time. There's no improvement in mortality. Five separate studies, the ACCORD study, the ADVANCE study, the Muraglitazar study, the UKPDS study, the um, uh, VA study. Bottom line, there's no improvement in mortality because those medicines are not solving the problem. They're papering over the problem. The problem is the metabolic dysfunction in each of these cases. Same with hypertension. Same with osteoporosis. Bottom line, what we have is we have a pharmacopoeia. We have an entire you know, armamentarium of drugs that are band-aids instead of actual fixes for the problem. Turns out the only thing that fixes chronic disease is food. Fix the food, fix the disease, fix society. Unfortunately, that's not what the food industry is selling. That's the problem. And so the question is, how do you get the food industry to do the right thing? That is the question. That is the question. I'm going to tell you that is a big question. Um, the food industry is starting to wake up to this issue. In fact, I'm um, giving a, uh, an investment seminar um, this weekend on exactly this topic, and it will be filled with uh, food industry executives. And I will be explaining to them what it is that they need to do. The World Economic Forum at Davos just released a white paper on the true purpose of nutrition. And they came down to three precepts. Protect the liver, feed the gut, support the brain. Any food that does all three is healthy. Any food that does none of those three is not food. It's poison. And any food that does one or two, but not all three, is going to be somewhere in the middle. The goal is to get the ultra-processed food companies to re-engineer their products so that they meet those three criteria. Protect the liver, feed the gut, support the brain. Can that be done? Absolutely, it can be done, and we're already doing it. I and a, a group of colleagues, uh, scientific advisory team, have been working with an offshore uh, food in, uh, company in the Middle East known as KDD, Kuwaiti Danish Dairy. And we have completely re-engineered their entire 180-item portfolio to be metabolically healthy. It's still processed food, but it solves the problem. And so they are now on the shelves in Kuwait and now through the uh, uh, Middle East and North Africa. Now, Dr. Lustig, let me ask you this. Why do we have to process food at all? I mean, we go to our local farmer's market and we buy all kinds of vegetables. We buy fruit. We buy food around the edges of the supermarket rather than in the middle where it's all processed. And when we take it home, we process it because I, uh, what needs to be cooked gets cooked. Well, that's because you run the people's pharmacy. <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is uh, there is a middle of the grocery store that you don't 
go to, but the rest of uh, North Carolina does. Okay. And I can prove it (laughs) because I got pictures. So uh, you're not, you know, shall we say uh, typical. Uh, We we need to talk about the rest of society. The question is, why are they buying ultra processed food? And the answer is many fold. Okay. There's the cost issue. That's where the subsidies come in. There's the coolness issue. That's where the marketing comes in. Okay. There's the convenience issue. That, that, that's an enormous problem. But the biggest issue, I will tell you right now, is what is the biggest fast food restaurant chain in America? I would think it's McDonald's. Am I wrong? You would be wrong. It is our nation's public schools. Oh, that's shocking. So, so essentially what you're telling us, so, kids. So if you think about how we are branding our kids. Yeah. So that they, they when they end up, you know, adults, young adults, what do you think they're going to be buying? Well, I know that what we eat when we're kids, especially the comfort foods that our mothers feed us, that's what we crave when we're, when we grow up. And and I do remember that when um, when we were kids, which I must say was a very long time ago, <laughs> people complained about the cafeteria, the you know, school cafeteria food. Indeed, that's right. And uh, so you're telling me kids aren't complaining about cafeteria food anymore because they're getting in the school cafeteria exactly what they would get at a fast food chain. Exactly right, and and of course at home too. That's exactly right. Um, uh, I am the chief science officer of a nonprofit here in the Bay Area called Eat Real. And so for your listeners, you know, look up eatreal.org. We have developed a new business model by which it actually saves the school money to be able to generate real food uh, for each uh, student. And we're doing this now in uh, districts uh, in six separate states. And uh, it's being looked at uh, by California for the entire state of California as a model. So there are ways to do this. If you're interested, go to eatreal.org. And we, the, the, the rationale for the business model is on the, uh, on the website. So it doesn't have to but, be this way. But Dr. Lustig, are you telling me that in some schools, they are actually serving real food instead of pizza and macaroni and cheese not that there's anything necessarily wrong with macaroni and cheese but are <laughs> what exactly are you serving in these cafeterias we uh real food <laughs> um uh in fact food that came from the fat chance cookbook that we wrote because cindy gershon my uh cookbook co-author okay was one of the uh major uh implementers of this uh, eat real phenomenon. And so the entire Mount Diablo Unified School District eats well every single day. And kids aren't complaining? Not a bit. They line up. Not a bit. So real food can be real good. Real food can be real cheap. Real cheap and tasty. And tasty, of course. Well, I think if you address the cost factor, that is going to win over the you know the school boards they're they're very interested in that well and and we're doing it and we've got a wait list and if anybody wants to help us you know sign up at eat real 
So, Dr. Lustig, I'm wondering, we understand that there's some new guidelines for childhood obesity. And I'm wondering what you think about those new guidelines and how we should be addressing them. So I'm very aware. The guidelines say two things. And the first I am completely and totally 100% in favor of. And the second one, not so much. The first thing is that they are now saying, the American Academy of Pediatrics is now saying that, in fact, obesity is a problem not to be ignored. Up till now, pediatricians were kind of told, yeah, you know, it's baby fat, it'll go away, you know, a lot of assurance, a lot of, you know, shall we say, benign neglect in terms of uh, overweight in children. The new guidelines say that's inappropriate and that children need intensive intervention at the earliest ages possible. Having run the obesity program at UCSF for 20 years, I completely, wholeheartedly, 100% agree. No good will come of waiting. So that's the part of the guidelines I uh, am in agreement with. The second part, not so much. Because the second part says, and we should be using medications and surgeries in children 12 years of age or older in, in a much more liberal fashion. Now, I ran an obesity program. I put plenty of kids on medicine. I sent many kids to bariatric surgery. You know, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of the fulfillment of what I did for 20 years. I should be happy about this. I was never happy about putting any kid on medicine. I was never happy about putting any kid under the knife. Okay. To say that this is what we should be doing, that, the, you know, to normalize that uh, behavior, I think is the problem. Now, they will say, well, but diet and exercise didn't work. So this is the only thing. Yeah, diet and exercise doesn't work when you have mitochondrial dysfunction and inflammation. You have to change the food, you have to change the food environment. To say to somebody, eat less, exercise more, is not diet and exercise. That's not dying excess. Fix the environment. You've talked a lot about mitochondrial dysfunction, Dr. Lustig. We've been told that statins deplete the body of something called coenzyme Q10, which is apparently essential for mitochondrial function. What are your thoughts about people on statins to lower their risk of heart disease and CoQ10? The enzyme that statins inhibit is called free beta-hydroxyglutaryl CoA reductase. It's in the mitochondria. So if you have a problem with your mitochondria, how does that manifest? Manifest with hyperglycemia. Well, it turns out 20% of people on statins become hyperglycemic, and actually some become frank diabetic. Not surprising, is it? So the fact is, People who are on statins are at great risk for getting diabetes. And the question is, do they need them? Four out of five people who are on statins don't need them. Now, I'm not telling people to go off statins. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that four out of five people who are on statins don't need them. You need to talk with your doctor about whether or not you do need them. 
There are people who think that if your LDL is high, you need to be on a statin. That's what various guidelines say. That's garbage. Now, why is that garbage? Turns out there's not one LDL, there's two. There's one called large buoyant, there's one called small dense. Statins will treat the large buoyant, but the large buoyant are not the cause of heart disease. The small dense are. And statins don't do anything for those. And it turns out small dense are really the remnants of triglyceride not having anything to do with LDL. So you need to talk to your doctor and you need to know whether your doctor actually understands lipidology. Or is he just reading off the side of a, um, a lab slip that says LDL high? So if you need a statin, you need a statin. I take statins. I've taken statins for 33 years because my entire family has familial hypercholesterolemia. My grandfather died at age 44 of a heart attack. My father had his heart attack at 61. My mother's, fa- my mother's father had his first heart attack at age 38 and had four heart attacks before he finally died at age 72. I've got it. My sister's got it. Okay. We need them. But that doesn't mean you do. Dr. Lustig, we have one minute, maybe two at most left. This is your chance to tell people what they should be doing, not just for their kids, but for themselves to lose the weight that they want so desperately to get rid of. Look, think of it this way. You go up into your attic and you find a wasp buzzing around your attic. What are you going to do? Kill a wasp or find the wasp's nest? You can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And you can't solve a problem by treating the results of a problem. You have to treat the cause of the problem. You have to work upstream of the problem. The reason for this problem is our processed food supply. And we know that because when ultra-processed food was introduced to this country, that's when obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, all went through the roof because all of those are due to mitochondrial dysfunction. If you eat processed food, nothing else will work. You have to rethink your refrigerator. You have to rethink your kitchen. You have to rethink your lunch, your dinner, your breakfast. You have to rethink what it is that makes you happy. Ask yourself the question, does food make me happy? And if so, why? Ask that question, and then you'll be able to change. Dr. Robert Lustig, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Terry. You've been listening to Dr. Robert Lustig. Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including his most recent, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. 
Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. Connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1,332. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast includes some extra information on mitochondrial dysfunction, statins, and coenzyme Q10. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.